After an accident, minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. You need help, and you need it now. This is David vs. Goliath, brought to you by Dolman Law Group Accident Injury Lawyers, a boutique firm with a reputation for going head-to-head -head with the insurance company giants and putting people over profits. Thanks for joining us. This is an episode from our back catalog, so the episode numbers and firm name may have changed. But this is quality information, so instead of scrapping them, we decided it was more important to make sure you still had access. Enjoy the episode, and listen to new episodes of David vs. Goliath at dolmanlaw.com. Welcome to the third edition of the Dolman Law Group podcast. I'm attorney Matthew Dolman, the managing partner of Dolman Law Group. And today I have a special guest, Jeffrey Pfeiffer, the uh, new associate at our firm. Jeffrey, say hello. How's everybody doing? Today we're going to discuss values of a personal injury claim. How do we derive the value? What can you expect? Um, how do you increase the value of a claim? And what are the actual components? What's the criteria to uh, determining the value of a claim? Now, first off, and, and I'm often asked by current clients, you know, my friend Susie down the block was represented by a personal injury attorney and she got a $45,000 settlement. Why am I only getting a 25 to 30K offer or even less? And what I want to stress to my viewers and prospective personal injury clients is not all cases are created the same. In fact, there's so much criteria that goes into a personal injury claim. In fact, you know, if I'm talking to the individual, the first thing I say is I don't know who the insurance companies were that were involved. Some insurance carriers tend to be a bit easier than others. Some tend to take the mantra that we're going to litigate everything and we're going to deny, delay, and defend every single insurance claim that comes our way. You seen the same thing, Jeff? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people that come into our office, they don't quite understand that, you know, every, like you said, every insurance company is different. Um, you're dealing with different adjusters and the facts of every case are different. So it all just depends. Yeah. A claim evaluated by State Farm for $8,000 might be evaluated by the Hartford Insurance Company for $35,000, $40,000. And we see this often. I mean, this is not, this is consistent. It's, uh, it's not an outlier. It's not an exception to the rule. This is the rule in our office. Pretty much, you know, there's a three or four carriers that evaluate claims the same way. State Farm, Geico, 21st Century, and I'd say Travelers. And then the other ones kind of are a little bit more liberal in how they value the claim. The first four insurance companies I mentioned, and I should have included Mercury, they tend to pay fairly when we get the case in litigation, but in a pre-suit mentality, when we're saying a demand just based off the medical records before we file a lawsuit, it tends to be very difficult. It's like an, it's very onerous. Um, it's like a war of attrition without filing the lawsuit itself. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay. So the, what are the main factors when discussing, you know, when, when determining the value of a case? First, I want to know who is the client. Are they young or are they a bit older? And, you know, not every client, in fact, I'm, I rarely ever came across a client. In fact, I've never come across a client that comes from central casting as the 18-year-old that's got hit by a Pepsi bottling truck. I'm waiting for that case to come through. So many of our clients have claims uh, that pre-existed or injuries that pre-existed this current claim or had prior claims and uh, prior automobile or motorcycle or slip and fall claims. And uh, it's, it's rare an individual over the age of 35 has a, you know, a medical records that are devoid of any prior treatment. The question becomes, you know, the crux of our practice is auto accidents. So we're seeing a lot of neck and back injuries. And the question that we often, you know, we're often faced with is how do we determine if the injury is acute or if it's pre-existing in nature? What have you seen so far? Um, you know, during a lot of the intakes, um, I just get a lot of questions from, from potential clients as far as, you know, I was in a prior accident. Uh, you know, maybe it was three, four, five years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. 
And, uh, you know, I was injured, you know, is that going to, you know, keep me from making a recovery in this case or how is that going to affect my case? And, you know, I just kind of walk them through and just tell them that, you know, there's a thing called exacerbation of your injuries and, um, you know, we can still work with it. It doesn't mean that you don't have a claim, um, you know, and we kind of go from there. In fact, sometimes it makes the claim stronger. Uh, I'm able to actually show a timeline, if you will. I can show the prior MRIs and compare it to the current MRIs, the diagnostic test as to the cervical, lumbar or thoracic spine and, you know, pinpoint what injuries are new, what are old, especially if I have a prior MRI film where I can have an expert radiologist take a look at it. If not, if we don't have films from a prior accident or prior injury or prior, maybe it's just prior maintenance treatment for having some uh, a kink in your neck or back, and the insurance company has discovered that, and they, you know, we like to let the insurance company know of all records so they can ascertain and make a, an articulate determination what the value of a case is. I don't like to hide anything, but if we don't have prior records, then sometimes the adjuster at least can determine by viewing the film, if the injury is acute or based on the degeneration and dehydration of the disc, they can tell it's old, a degenerative condition that preexisted the day of this accident. That that helps us. In fact, sometimes seeing a prior preexisting injury makes the case a little bit easier, especially when they're over the age of 35, 40, to determine what is acute versus what is preexisting. Yeah. And, you know, if we, if we can look at a prior film and we can see that there's, you know, already an injury at that level and they're complaining of an injury here at the same level, then we've kind of already identified what the problem is, um, you know, and, and what the areas are that, that, you know, that they're being affected. Correct. And going off my example from earlier, so the friend Susie down the block who was represented by a different lawyer, why is she getting more? I often want to know, you know, what was the prior medical records, what they look like, not just what the insurance companies that were involved what were the prior medical records? What was there before this accident? And what do the current medical records look like? It's like, you're asking me a question, but it's a snapshot in time. I don't, I, I don't have this information available to me. You know, they, you might say that your friend had back pain, neck pain, and saw a surgeon, and they got a recommendation. How come my recommendation is not worth as much as their recommendation? But I don't know what the MRIs look like. I don't know what the treatment, I don't know what the workup of the claim was like, let alone the insurance company, let alone the property damage. And I mean, there's a number of issues and criteria that go into the case. How old was the client? what the prior claims they have on the record, I mean, so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, without looking at their prior record and determining, the, you know, the extent of the treatment that they went through, whether they have injections, um, you know, were they recommended for a surgery, um, it's hard to, to really, you know, make any evaluation of, of somebody else's claim without actually seeing the records. And what we see from a lot of uh, our peers in the field, and this isn't, it's just a generalization. There's, a, there's some great attorneys, there's some very average lawyers. Um, there's a whole mix of lawyers in Pinellas, Hillsboro, Pasco, Sarasota, Manatee County, where we practice. But you'll see a positive MRI result, and they send the client right out to a surgeon to get a recommendation. A lot of times it's volume shops, a lot of TV, uh, advertising mills, if you will, that will send the client out just to get a positive uh, or get a, a good recommendation from a spine surgeon and try to bluff the insurance company into paying a lot of money. What I want to ensure my clients understand is, yeah, that will move the needle a little bit. We might add maybe two to three, maybe even five, ten thousand dollars in a in a pre litigation case. Could be more depending on the facts of the case. And every case is much different. But if the insurance company does not believe you're actually having the surgery, um, they're not going to pay. You know, if the insurance company were to pay in every single surgical recommendation I had in my office, I'd be re long retired. So would most of the lawyers in Pinellas and Pasco County and Hillsborough. It doesn't work that way. What the insurance company will look at is if uh, you've been recommended for procedures, surgery, even injections, and you have not done the injections. How serious could your injury be? How bad can the pain be if you're not undergoing treatment? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to, uh, you know, if you send somebody straight to a, to a surgeon, you know, the case hasn't been worked up properly. 
Um, you know, and there's there's just no no treatment between the time of the accident and the time that you've signed up and going straight to a surgeon. The insurance companies they're going to wonder what's up, and um, you know it's important along the way that you know you you treat with a chiropractor so they can see that you're continuing to treat. They that you know you get in with a specialist. Um, you know maybe get evaluated for injections and that kind of you know those steps need to be established before you end up going to see a surgeon. Correct. You know, there's a workup to a case. So the client will often ask, why am I seeing a chiropractor or a physical therapist? Well, absent, you know, and, and I'm, I'm being very general here because we're not talking about shoulder and knee injuries today. Uh, I mean, I'll get into that, but more the, the crux of our discussion will be about cervical, which is the neck, lumbar, lower back, and thoracic upper back injuries. And in the majority of our cases um, where an individual has a neck or back issue component to the case, we're asking ourselves, how is this case going to be worked up? And the client says, why am I going to see a chiropractor or physical therapist? Well, sitting on your butt at home, you know, without objective medical documentation, without showing up consistently for treatment, you have undermined the value of your case. In fact, the value of your claim will be almost nil if you're not seeking some type of conservative care. And you need to establish conservative care before you try more provocative care like injection therapy and move along the line to if you inevitably need to see a surgeon, you have surgery. And most of my clients never see a surgeon unless they failed injection therapy. You know, if they've tried injections or tried different non-surgical procedures, it doesn't warrant surgical intervention absent they have drop foot because of a lower back injury where they're dragging their foot or they have caught Aquinas syndrome where they're literally peddling themselves where uh, they lose control of their bodily functions or they have um, such serious radiculopathy, that's a nerve injury, where uh, they have grip strength loss or... Um, you know, they're, they're dropping things and this is affecting uh, their vocational skills, their ability to work, their ability to carry their children. Um, you know, some of my clients cannot carry a baby simply because they have such loss of grip strength, such loss of strength in their hands and their, their uh, upper extremities due to a car accident, mo you know, motorcycle accident, whatever have you. Um, you know, that's, that's why you need to start with conservative care. Absent those type of serious conditions, you're not seeing a spine surgeon right off the bat. Yeah. And, you know, after you've, you know, you've done conservative care, um, you know, and you've seen a specialist, maybe you've had some injections. Another important issue that we often run into is the fact that a lot of clients don't understand that, you know, after you've done this treatment and, you know, you go to see a spine surgeon, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to actually go through with a surgery. Um, you know, we like to get, get clients in to at least get them evaluated and kind of see, you know, what, what a surgeon thinks, but it doesn't automatically mean that you're going to go through with a surgery. Correct. And also, you know, but they have to have tried at least uh, injection therapy and generally have tried it and it failed to alleviate the uh, the underlying condition that they have. Maybe it helped for a little bit of time. Most of these injections, they're not necessarily therapeutic. They don't really solve much. Not all of them. There's some procedures that do, but the majority of them are done for, uh, you know, diagnostic purposes to kind of pinpoint the disc level where the injury is at. Are you concordant? Meaning do you feel pain at that level? Or has the uh, injection relieved the pain for a finite period of time, which tells them that, that that's the problematic disc area and that they are probably a candidate for something more serious. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I guess I get, we can kind of move into the next uh, the next phase of uh, some common questions that we usually get. Um, you know, when it comes down to, to the actual accident itself, um, you know, it's always important to kind of look at what happened. What happened during the accident, during the moment of impact? Um, you know, we can talk a little bit about the liability issues and just kind of things that we commonly address with clients when they come in. Sure. You know, the a huge issue, you know, right off the bat is, and I often instruct my clients and any prospective personal injury client in the state or anywhere in the United States, take pictures. We're in the day and age of mobile phones. Pretty much all of us have them. 
when you get out of the car, hopefully you're okay. Uh, obviously, if you're not, seek medical care immediately. Um, EMS may be called to the scene. But in your typical uh, rear-end side impact accident where the individual least is cognizant, is able to get out of the car on their own, um, you want to take photos of the property damage. Pictures are worth a, a thousand words. You know that, that saying is so true and is so dear to our profession. Without the pictures, without being able to illustrate the property damage, is very homogenous. It's uh, you know, they'll, they'll claim it's moderate property damage or nothing too significant. It's a whole different story when I'm able to blow up a picture of uh, my client's property damage and mediation at trial, and sometimes in my demand letters to the insurance carrier to show them just how severe the property damage is. I mean, we can look at a $2,200 property damage claim, but it's on a 1989 car or a car from the early 90s, and perhaps that's the value of the car, and the car has been totaled out, and you can see that the car has folded like an accordion. Yeah, not only you know do you want to take pictures, but a lot of people when they're first involved in an accident, they really even if it's a minor accident, they they think that they shouldn't call the police. Um, but it's always important to at least call the authorities and get them on the scene to have an accident report, so that we have an you know somebody there who can document what happened. Correct. And we talked about that actually in volume one, our first podcast, where I had Alex Knapp with me, another attorney at the office. Uh, the purpose of calling the police is at least there's somebody to take a recordation down of what happened according to the witnesses and according to the individuals that are involved, the parties in the accident. Um, it prevents the, you know, the individual who was in the accident later on saying that, you know, I wasn't really at fault. Uh, the guy was actually put his car in reverse and hit me at the light or, you know, uh, the client, the individual cut me off when they just changed their story to give a self-serving version to prevent them from uh, having their insurance, you know, rates jacked up. We see that time and time again. That's why you want to have law enforcement out there. Keep in mind that police reports are more often than not inadmissible at trial. They're considered hearsay. And the likelihood that the police officer will be able to testify at trial two years later and have an accurate recollection of what occurred in that accident, absent it being a, a death or a, a, an extremely serious car accident, is, is between likely and none. You know, slim and none. Slim has left the room. So it's not going to happen. These things rarely get in unless you have an attesting witness, which is the police officer who took down the report. Yeah. And when we, you know, when a case first comes into the office, it's always important to, you know, we always review the accident report if there happens to be a liability issue in the case. Um, you know, liability issue means, um, you know, determining who was at fault for the accident. A lot of clients, you know, they'll say that, you know, I was, I was not at fault for the accident. Um, but some insurance companies, you'll find that they'll value it 50 50 50 for the defendant 50 for the plaintiff um, or a so, portion liability and some some permutation of that where there's yeah. 20 80 or whatever it is they'll, they'll portion some liability on our client yeah and we have to you know we'll pull up the accident report kind of see what happened and we can always you know get somebody out there to look at the scene and that kind of helps us speak with the client about the liability issue and work with the insurance companies that way yeah and in those such cases where there's a dispute if we actually have an individual witness or from the pictures itself and viewing the accident scene we believe that we can possibly overcome based on our client's argument, we'll retain an accident reconstructionist and sometimes even a biomechanical engineer. The accident reconstructionist will help show and illustrate how the accident really took place based on timing sequences, based on the speed of the car. Oftentimes we will um, send out what's called a spoliation letter, which prevents any destruction of evidence and the car is evidence. So we like to get the black box in the car and show what speed the car is traveling at the time or was the car idle. Um, we like to get surveillance if it's possible. Is there surveillance nearby at any stores? or the traffic light, go out and also test the lights and see how often are they changing, what's the sequence there, uh, what's the timing, um, what are the weather conditions like that day. And if we feel like we have a decent argument on like to stand on, we'll spend the money and we'll retain accident reconstructions to determine and illustrate what is a liability situation, what does it look like. The biomechanical engineer will be able to determine the force of the impact, which is a little bit different. That's when the insurance carriers are claiming that 
you know, it's a minor impact or it's a moderate impact. How could your uh, client be so injured? Well, that's when you hire the biomechanical engineer and through, it's science, and through mathematical computations are able to show what is the speed and how much speed went into that impact and how much energy was transferred in that impact to the, the individual's body. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes these experts, you know, sometimes looking at a vehicle, you can't really tell what the total impact was or how this impact affected the vehicle. Um, but some, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, just because there's cosmetic damage to the outside, there may also be frame damage. Um, you know, the, the actual frame of the vehicle may have been altered in some way. And, and by hiring an expert, you know, they can go look at the vehicle and they can kind of give us, um, you know, an evaluation and kind of explain to us how that worked. Correct. That's what we like to bring experts in. And it makes it, uh, they're going to bring their own experts in too. It's not, uh, they just accept it. But in a pre-suit, pre-suit and litigation are two different stories. So in litigation, the insurance carrier will always hire their own expert to counter yours. Sometimes they'll bring in experts prior to bringing one in uh, if there's a dispute about liability. Police reports don't play a large role in litigation because, again, it's considered hearsay. But they do play a huge role in the insurance adjuster's evaluation of the claim. If all they have is the self-serving statement of their insurance saying it wasn't at fault, and they don't have anything else, there's no eyewitnesses, and we're able to show through an accident reconstruction what really happened, that holds a lot of weight. The police report does hold a lot of weight for us. Yeah, and you'll see the adjuster usually change their position if, if um, you know, all they have is a self-serving statement from their insured, and we're able to come back with, um, you know, some sort of, um, uh, you know, accident, uh, you know, expert report and, and ability to show that our client actually was not at fault for the accident. Okay. Now, you know, just going back a second, I know we're running a little bit out of order here, but I, I feel like I kind of rushed the uh, first segment where we were talking about injuries and why you're seeing a chiropractor or a physical therapist before you go see, um, you know, somebody for injections, whether it's a neurologist, a, uh, you know, PM&R doctor, which is physical medicine and rehabilitation. I want to, you know, really stress the fact that it's important to get in and treat right away, to be evaluated at an emergency room or an urgent care center. Urgent care centers are usually quicker and cheaper absent very, very serious injuries. You want to just get checked out. You got a little bit of a neck and back pain, um, maybe headaches. You're feeling some discomfort, but it's not something that warrants um, immediate medical attention as in you might need surgery right away. Go to an urgent care center. It's going to be quicker. It's going to be cheaper. But the point of conservative care, the point of going to a chiropractor or a physical therapist cannot be underestimated. There, there has to be a finite period of time where you try conservative care and it failed to alleviate the issues that you have. It felt either completely alleviated or not. It didn't get completely, you know, the issues have not completely absolved itself within a four to six month period. We see that kind of span of time that's gone by four to six months and the client still has the same issues or they don't have a complete relief. Then it's time to really work the case up. And generally, we're sending our clients to a physiatrist, neurologist, um, somebody for interventional pain within the first four to six weeks in the case to kind of start that work up, up to have an MD or DO already on the case that. You know, a lot of chiropractors are great, and there's some bad apples too. And that's part of the argument of why some individuals want to get rid of PIP in the state, you know, personal injury protection. We're in a no-fault state. Um, sometimes the chiropractors will run roughshod over the first $10,000, and then you have an MD at least saying, slow down, let's pump the brakes. There's no need to treat so aggressively three or four times a week. If we're going to do three to four weeks, three or four days of treatment a week, maybe you need to try an injection at this point. Maybe we need to try something a little bit more provocative to see how you're going to react. Maybe we need to first start with trigger point injections, which is very minimal. Or is there a need? We already have an MRI and we can see that there's a herniation or an annular tear in the herniation. Do we need an epidural injection? Um, is it worth trying a rhizotomy or radiofrequency ablation because uh, there's um, 
some facet impingement. You know, there's an issue with the facet. So, which is a procedure where they electrocute the, uh, the you know, it's electricity going into the facet levels, which is the, basically the pain messenger to your brain. So is it worth giving that a shot? And, you know, we like to get our doctors involved very early in the case. Um, these are ultimately going to be our experts that we have to try the case. And we like to develop, develop a nice timeline to it. But at the same point, the conservative care continues. Unless it's so serious the client needs to see a surgeon or begin procedures with, um, you know, the, the whether it's a, a PM&R doctor, neurologist, or anesthesiologist, they kind of overlap and they do injections. Unless they need that immediately and they need to stop chiropractic care because they feel like any adjustment could worsen the neck condition or the back condition, they'll do both simultaneously. They'll try the injections and go with the chiro care and or physical therapist and continue the conservative care for a finite duration of time, which is usually, again, four to six months because you want to establish that baseline to client's injuries. Yeah, you know, it's important to to get a good workup on the case, as you said. Um, you know, I often have, you know, clients who um, they don't quite understand the the reasoning behind having to go to the hospital for, you know, even if it's just, you know, right after the accident and it's just for an evaluation, it's important to show that, you know, that you were, you know, injured enough or you were in such pain that, you know, you felt the need to at least go in and get evaluated. Um, and then, you know, when they show up here uh, to get signed up, you know, they don't understand that, you know, it's chiropractic care is something that's probably going to be needed. Um, you know, they don't understand that, um, you know, in addition to chiropractic care, it's important to have an MD on the case, like you said. So Or DO, yeah. Or DO, yeah. So we, you know, we always try to make sure that they understand this and that, you know, we kind of show them that this is how, that this is, this is what's needed, you know, as far as the medical side of things. Yeah, and the MDDO cannot be underestimated either, uh, undervalued. Um, the point of the MDDO also is that chiropractic has a pejorative tone with endurance adjusters. It just does. And there's a reason why, um, you know, they changed the PIP statute around three years ago was to punish. It was, it was punitive against chiropractors that they can declare, you know, a, a medical doctor can declare an emergency medical condition, but a chiropractor cannot to limit PIP coverage. And we can get into that in another episode. This is very convoluted, um, and it's not really germane to what we're talking about today. But the insurance companies try to attempt to punish chiropractors. If all the client has ever seen is a chiropractor and done nothing else, it has the smell and stink of a personal injury lawyer kind of running the medical treatment, which you never want to see. You want to let the clients kind of run their own medical treatment. You want to suggest that, you know, this is how this works out. If you do this, um, this is how you develop damages in a case. If you don't, this is what is going to happen. But at the same point, if it's not meritable, if you're not really in pain, obviously you're not going to, you know, go forth and treat for four to six months. And that's, we try to limit those cases and get them out of our office. You know, you'll see a lot of settlement mills out there. A lot of TV law firms will keep these cases on forever and just garbage in, garbage out mentality. We try to put some quality work into our cases. Uh, at the same time though, you want to move the case along and you don't want to just stuck in a uh, perpetuity with a chiropractor. You want to move along and have the MDDO involved. It just, it gives it a lot more validity to the claim. Any thing that the chiropractor is claiming when the MD is recommending more conservative care or recommending conservative care in the first place, it looks makes the case look stronger. Yeah, you know, and it's not it's not our goal to, you know, to constantly push um, you know, any client to treat. If they tell us that they're feeling, you know, feeling better with chiropractic care or with an injection or, you know, um it's always important that they understand that, you know, if you're feeling better, listen, you know, that's that's the ultimate goal here. And um, you know, we're not gonna push you any further than, you know, what you're comfortable with. And uh you know, so oftentimes, you know, we're fine with with letting them direct their treatment. And if they're telling us that they're better, you know, we can go ahead and, and move the case and try to wrap it up. Correct. Um, I, think, I think we pretty much covered medical treatment for the most part. I just want to, again, uh, emphasize the fact that a recommendation, it helps. But if you're not actually undergoing the procedure or surgery that's recommended, absent maybe there's underlying circumstances like you're pregnant or um, you already have metal hardware in your body and you cannot undergo another surgical procedure or you have some type of pre-existing condition 
which uh, would, you know, jeopardize your health in undergoing a surgical procedure, a surgical intervention. If you're not under, if you're not committing to the recommendation, if you're not willing to uh, at least attempt what is being recommended, the insurance company will always, it happens in every single case, very cookie cutter, they will always state how badly could your client be injured, how badly could this individual be injured if they're not seeking anything further. That's why recommendations don't hold a whole lot of weight absent you actually undergoing the procedure or surgery that's been recommended for you. Yeah, I mean, being recommended for something and, and claiming that, you know, you may do it sometime down, you know, sometime in the future, just insurance companies just don't pay for that kind of thing. So. Yeah, what makes it worse is in a pre-suit mentality, when we're dealing with just the adjuster before a lawsuit has been filed, the recommendation may hold some weight. But then when you file a lawsuit and six to eight months have gone by before you get to mediation, sometimes some counties it takes even longer, I mean, how backlogged things are, but you get to mediation and a long period of time has taken, you know, has passed. We're looking at a timeline where you haven't done anything more in six to eight months. And now you have a, uh, you know, uh, a stale case, if you will. You have a, a claim where the individual did not do anything further. You have like a depreciating asset on your hand. It's a case is not going to build value. In fact, it lost value. You've undermined your claim. That's the problem we're seeing with a lot of cases that if one, the client wants to file a lawsuit, they feel it's an unfair offer. But at the same point, it's hard to build damages once you're filing your lawsuit, especially if the client has, uh, is not committed to any further medical treatment. There, the argument that how bad could your client be injured is only strengthened by the fact that we now have this gap of six months, a year, year and a half where there's been no medical treatment. Maybe they saw the chiropractor a few more times. Maybe they went once every two weeks to the chiro, but they're kind of hit baseline. There's nothing worse about their injuries. They have not needed more provocative care, let alone surgery. Yeah. I mean, without moving forward, um, you know, with, with any kind of recommendations, it's just, it's like you said, it's very difficult for us to just, you know, show the insurance company that, that there's any future value to the case. So, you know, oftentimes during those situations, you know, it's best to just kind of wrap it up. Correct. And then, you know, the last thing we want to talk about today is who are the insurance carriers that are involved? You know, who is it? Is it you know, on the bodily injury side, who is the at-fault party, the other party that was in the car accident that caused the issue? Who is their insurance carrier? Who is your own insurance carrier? Do you have underinsured slash uninsured motorist coverage, which is so very important. It's not really that expensive. Uninsured slash underinsured motorist coverage means you have coverage in the event that the other party, the person that caused the accident, is uninsured, which the number of Floridians are, or their insurance policy is insufficient to cover your future medical damages. For example, let's say they have a $10,000 bodily injury policy on the at-fault party who caused the accident, and uh, the injuries amount to probably $25,000, $30,000 in medical bills, and uh, there's ongoing medical treatment still continuing, and you clearly have a case that exceeds the $10,000 policy limits, who are you going to go after then? That's what you have uninsured, underinsured motorist coverage for. That person is underinsured. So that's what that kind of coverage is there for. And so it's pertinent. It's, it's necessary. Uh, it's vital. Um, I can't understand why anyone would not have underinsured motorist coverage. The amount of individuals who are driving around uninsured or minimal coverage in the state, you need it. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, um, you know, people out there driving who don't have underinsured motorists are basically relying on the fact that if they get into an accident, you know, the person who hits them um, has bodily injury coverage. And in a lot of cases, you know, we we run into the situation where the person has no underinsured motorist, and the person that hit them actually has no bodily injury coverage either. So, so you know, we run into a situation where we have to explain to them, listen, you know, there's only so much we can do. If there's no insurance in the case, then you know, we're limited by insurance. There's, there's, only, there's no money to go yeah, after. Absent there being an asset check where the individual has significant um, liquid assets, assets that we can attach to or uh, file a lien against, it's almost impossible to uh, to obtain a fruitful judgment. There are some lawyers in town that have big jury verdicts against pro se defendants who didn't show up at trial and who don't have coverage, and it, it's not enforceable. 
So don't also be impressed by verdicts you see on websites. Some of them are against pro se defendants on cases where they're not collectible, where there's no insurance coverage at all. If you don't have insurance coverage to go after, it's it's almost certainly, it's it, not always. I mean, there's a couple of uh, exceptions to the rule, but it's a near certainty that you're not going to have a fruitful case. There's nothing to go after at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, and also I also get questions from clients about their health insurance and how that how that affects their case. Um, you know, and I just tell them that, you know, it's important to know that, you know, some of the bills actually may be paid through your health insurance. And we always recommend it. Use your health insurance if and when possible, especially for uh, injection therapy or surgical procedures. It, you know, the, the health insurance company will pay the bill. What most clients don't realize is there's a process called subrogation. Absent you being in a car accident, you're not going to have to pay your health insurance carrier back. But if you're in a car accident, slip and fall injury, if there's a personal injury claim going on, the health insurance carrier, whether it's Aetna, Cigna, uh, United Healthcare, they're going to want to get paid back at the end, but they're only going to want to get paid back a portion, a pennies on the dollar, sometimes 20, 30 cents on the dollar of what they paid out, which is going to be a lot less than often a letter of protection, which is, is a term of art in the state and in many states where personal injury is practiced. A letter of protection is a document where you're basically guaranteeing the medical provider that you're going to earmark the settlement money in trust to pay their outstanding balance, which you will then negotiate when the case resolves. But what you're going to pay off a letter of protection is going to be a lot more expensive than what you're going to be paying off of health insurance, especially in a surgery. So that's why health insurance is so – it's 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 exceptional when my clients have it. It makes things so much easier to work around. I know a lot of personal injury lawyers hate it because it feels like it's another step and it's a, it takes a little bit longer to disperse the money and collect their money at the end of the case. But we're not desperate to get to collect our money. We'd rather do a right job for a client and the client saves so much more money when we have health insurance involved. Yeah. And, you know, in addition to the BI and the UM, there's also what we have known as PIP here in Florida. Mm -hmm. um, it's important that, you know, clients understand, you know, that the first $10,000 typically of your covered or of your bills are, you know, paid, usually paid through the PIP. If, if there's a, you know, an emergency medical condition, you know, within the first 14 days, you have to treat in the state of Florida. If you have not commenced treatment in the first 14 days following your car accident, you will not have PIP available to you. Then... More often than not, we're going to require what's called an emergency medical condition, which is a term of uh, art created by the legislature. It's not a real medical term where they have to show, and it's, 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 it's vernacular. It's a lot of language that goes into this um, to show that this is a substantial injury that meets the criteria of being called what's an emergency medical condition. Most doctors do not even understand what that means, but there's enough doctors out there that do EMC consults, which will determine whether an emergency medical condition exists. Absent emergency medical condition, you're limited to $2,500 in coverage. That's a change in the statute that occurred back in 2014. So it all depends on whether an EMC exists. If an EMC exists, you're, you have $10,000 available to you. What I must you know, state at this point is, and the clients often don't realize this, this is really what's going to affect the value of your case too. The insurance carrier is entitled to an offset. So let's say I get a case with minimal property damage, minor injuries, and we get a jury verdict for $14,000, right? Just a small, small case, okay? Can't think of a, a, a very small case we're taking the trial, but let's, this is for, you know, for example only. You get a $14,000 verdict. Only your, your, your actual verdict is, is downgraded to $4,000. That's what the value you're able to collect off the case is because you're going to have a $10,000 Offset, so it's a collateral offset for PIP coverage if PIP coverage is actually available in the case. Even if an EMC has not been, if, if there's no EMC in the case, there's only $2,500 available for medical treatment, they're still entitled to a $10,000 offset, which is insane. And it's asinine. But that's how it works here in the state of Florida. So remember, there's a collateral offset for PIP coverage. So when the at fault party, if you try this case, ultimately, you know, in Pinellas, Hillsborough, Pasco, Manatee, Sarasota, anywhere in the state of Florida, 
um, they're entitled to this offset, which adjusters are very well aware of. And they'll often say, well, you know, I understand you sent us a demand letter and we only value this case as being worth $18,000 in a letter, but we're really valuing this case as worth $28,000 because it's $10,000 of PIP coverage also that stands in front of our $18,000. And clients often don't realize that. That's called an offset. That's what the insurance company is entitled to. It offsets their obligation under a jury verdict or judgment. Yeah, you know, and, and with that being said, you know, uh, with the BI and, of course, with the UM, um, you know, it's always important to make sure you just review your policies when you purchase your your insurance and you kind of, you know, look at the amount of coverages that you actually have in the case, you know, just keep an eye on in the future. And just in case you are, happen to run into a situation where you're going to need coverage in the future, it's always important, you know, the minimal coverage often, you know, severely limits your case and, and you know, the more the better. Correct. And last thing I'd like to touch on is, and it's vital when selecting your personal injury attorney and in determining the value of a case is who is your lawyer? Who is the law firm that you've retained to represent you in your personal injury case? Do they have experience trying cases? Do they have a pattern of litigating successfully in the county in which the accident occurred in? Um, do the insurance companies have a, they have a tracker with the insurance carriers for successful resolutions in litigation and at trial? It, absent that type of reputation, the insurance companies are generally going to lowball the claim. All insurance carriers carry a database on, you know, what type of outcomes the lawyer has had, and especially with their insurance carriers. You know, there's a lot of offshoot smaller insurance carriers that might not keep such a database, but they certainly know about the reputation of a lawyer or law firm that will research such. But the bigger carriers like Allstate, State Farm, Geico, Mercury, Progressive, um, they're USA, they're going to look at what are our prior resolutions with this law firm? What is their history? Have they obtained judgments against us, verdicts? in that specific county or anywhere in the state of Florida? Do they have trial lawyers at the firm? Like we have a board certified civil trial lawyer in Dave Neiser and one that's soon to be in, in Julia, my wife. I mean, it depends on how good are the lawyers at the firm, how often they litigate. The world's worst trial attorney is still better than the guy down the block who's never litigated a case, never tried a case. If there's no bite behind the bark, if all you're doing is barking, you don't have the ability to actually effectuate the bite and actually go after them, and it really means nothing. It's no different than um, an individual filing their own insurance claim and handling it themselves and not handling, having a lawyer involved. There's no threat. That's why they don't, they treat individuals who are, you know, who are, do not have counsel. They don't take them very seriously and they give them these low rinky dink offers of a thousand or two thousand dollars to sell their claim. We know full well it's worth over fifteen, twenty thousand dollars because they know there's no, there's no bite behind the bark. The claimant can sit there and pound their chest all they want, but they don't have the ability to actually effectuate anything because they're not going to be able to file a lawsuit. Yeah, I mean, they keep the database just so that they, they, you know, they they have an idea of how far basically they can push the attorney before they'll cave. I mean, they they have a history of you know knowing how far they they can go and what they can offer on cases and what what you know that attorney typically will settle for and and you know they use that to their advantage. And does the law firm also try cases on a shoestring budget, or they bring ex, you know expensive experts in um, that can really help set up the case and illustrate to the jury the damages. Um, the causation of the actual injuries the person has, you know, was it caused by the force, which is what a biomechanical engineer will show? Uh, do you have an MRI that you can, you know, a radiologist rather that can, uh, you retain a trial that can tell you what does the MRI show and decipher what is acute, meaning what is caused by this accident versus uh, what is preexisting? Uh, do you have a surgeon that can testify at trial to show you what they saw intraoperatively, which cannot, it's really hard to rebut that because no one else was there during the surgery and they can tell you what they saw at that this level when they're operating on patient X, you know, can you afford that? If a law firm is just doing case on a shoestring budget and not bringing the proper experts into trial, you get shoestring results. So it's all, it's very important to know the track record of the law firm and do not be enthralled and excited by looking at jury verdicts that appear on um, a law firm's website. 
I discourage you from doing that. You want to know if they have a history. And the results help show that they at least try cases. You can see verdicts versus settlements. Sometimes they're just posted as just numbers. You don't know if they ever tried these cases. They're just settlements. Did they bring in co-counsel? They do it themselves. And they'll claim that they did it all themselves. But they may have hired other lawyers to go do it for them. It's important to know if the lawyer has a reputation for trying cases. Do you have a board-certified civil trial lawyer at your law firm? That's vital. Um, there's the insurance company. That's it's somebody who can say they're actually an expert in trying cases in the state of Florida. You can actually, the Florida Bar allows you to make that designation because you have a history of trying cases and you have a board certification behind you. You're certified by the state of Florida as an expert in trial advocacy, as Dave Neiser is at our firm, and Julia soon will be. Um, if you don't have that, you, you really, is not, there's not much uh, bite behind the bark. Yeah, it's just important to make sure you, you know, you do some research, um, you know, more than just the opening page on the website, you know, because that's, it's a, it's a business. They're there to, to lure you in. And of course, they're going to show you what you want to see. But. Yeah. And I've seen so many jury verdicts and I can't tell you how, how often we see this on other law firms' websites, some of them very local firms here in Clearwater where they're advertising five, $10 million jury verdicts, but they're against pro se defendants who did not show up at trial knowing full well it wasn't enforceable. They're just adding another verdict to tack on a wall, like another notch on a belt, if you will. It's not an actual enforceable verdict and they weren't able to collect that money. And they don't tell them there. There's no disclaimer in the uh, website that says we weren't able to actually collect this money. It just shows a nice big number and clients are enthused by that and they use that for advertising purposes. Truth, truth be speaking is that there are a number of cases we could have uh, taken all the way to trial where there was no potential for ever being able to collect. We do what's, what's best for the client in our case. Yeah, you know, those are just there to, to lure a, a consumer in because they, they know that most average consumers don't understand the, you know, the details behind it and, um, you know, that they run with it from there. So. And verdict results are also um, misleading, you know, just based on the simple fact that they're showing you the good results. They're not showing you the times they've been zipped at trial, um, which every lawyer has. No matter how good the lawyer is, you're going to have trials that just do not work out well. You're putting it in the hands of six lay people um, and you're, you're hoping that they value it, but it still craps you to an extent. You know, it's it's very tough to try cases, especially here up in Pinellas, Hillsborough, Pasco, Manatee, Sarasota. It's a bit more conservative than Broward, Dade, and Palm Beach County on the East Coast. You're seeing West Coast verdicts are a bit lower. Uh, it's a little bit tougher up here based on the population, and it, it's just very difficult. So that's why it's misleading to look at the big verdicts. You want to know how many cases the, the law firm tried and what's their pattern of success because they're not putting up the times they got, you know, a verdict that was much less than settlement offer before trial yeah, or that- zero. And that also kind of goes back to the situation where we try to compare, you know, two different cases to one another. Also, it depends on where the case was tried and, and um, you know, who the attorneys were and what, you know, what the jury com- was, you know, comprised of and and whether it's a, you know, liberal or conservative area. So, Very true. Well, that wraps up our third episode of the Dolman Law Group podcast. I thank Jeffrey Pfeiffer for joining us today, and I wish you a pleasant day. Have a blessed one. This episode of David versus Goliath is over, but your journey is just getting started. To share your story with us, visit dolmanlaw.com. That's D O L M A N law.com or call 866 965 6242. The insights and views presented in David versus Goliath are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. Any case result information provided on any portion of this podcast should not be understood as a promise of any particular result in a future case. Dolman Law Group. Big firm results. Small firm personal attention.